What's up and welcome back to Nostalgia Pod, giving you another week of what's going on in pop culture. My name is Pat Sheehan, joined by my trusty co-host, Dave Martin Swagger. Dave, what's going on, man? Trying to tackle the television gauntlet that was April 2022, baby. We made it. Yeah, and uh, (laughs) we're not even going to talk about uh, some of the shows that we wanted to given just how much good TV there was. We had to be a little bit selective in ways. But yeah, uh, this this past week has been a lot of catch-up. Um, we're going to be talking even more TV next week. But just a lot of good stuff out. And, you know, I saw someone today posted a list of all the shows that they were trying to catch up on. They were like, Pachinko, Tokyo Vice, Barry, Better Call Saul, like on and Atlanta. on. And I was like, yeah, and I was like, man, it's not even like halfway through the year. Like what a what a banner year for TV this has been so far. I feel like, I feel like summer's not going to be too bad. I, I, my list, my running list, it's it's not 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 too daunting. So we're we're getting the work in, and then we're uh, we're chilling in a certain sense. Not really, but hey, whatever. Well, we're going to be talking about a few TV shows today, a movie, and a couple of albums. So hit that subscribe on YouTube.com/slash/NostalgiaPod as well as on Spotify, find us Nostalgia Pod and give us a five star rating. Let's start with a guy who feels like we're, we're talking about him pretty consistently. Action Bronson, who, I mean, since we started the podcast, has released four or five albums now. I think we've talked about four of them, though. I don't know if we talked about Blue Chip 7000 back in 2017, but White Bronco, Lambs Over Rice, Only for Dolphins, and now Coco Drillo turbo yeah i mean this guy is he's he seems to be leaning more and more into his like zaniness and i really just love it because i really don't think there's anyone that makes music quite like actually bronson right now yeah that's right speaking to the zania zaniness this is the fourth album slash project in a row where he's painted the album cover himself (laughs) gotta gotta give it up to him i also quite appreciate that the album cover for this sixth Action Bronson album is a crocodile of some kind, but the name is Cocodrillo. It's like trying to get you to say crocodile or crocodillo, but that, that that's that's not what the word is. You got to read. Yeah. Challenging us here. But yeah, Action Bronson, he's just uh, kind of, I think, settled in to uh, what he does best after he left Atlantic Records, left the major label, something that never really made sense to him and the kind of artist kind of personality he is. Now he's on Loma Vista. This is the uh, second record with them. And in a sense, it's once again, more Action Bronson, something you've probably heard on past Action Bronson album reviews. But if you're a fan of his and you've probably been listening to him for some time, that is not a negative. That is kind of the point of listening to Ashton Bronson. I want him to do what he does because what he does is very funny and uh, enjoyable usually. Yeah. You know, it, it's funny that he is probably a, a artist that I think of as a singular personality and that personality shines through in his music and everything he does, but it still really just feels not only authentic, but really interesting, you know, like uh, I think about kind of what we got on his, on the last album, right? Which I, I think we liked a lot. Um, Only for Dolphins. It was another one, of, like you said, like it's Action Bronson, but we it's still good and it's still like fun, even if it's not the best thing you're going to listen to all year. And that felt a little bit more Latin 
influence. You, know, you think about a song like Latin Grammys, which is mm. you know directly <laughs> uh, relating to that, but also just like maybe a bit grander at times. You know, like Golden Eye felt very like operatic in some ways, and this feels uh, Coco Drilla Turbo feels a little bit more like grounded, if that's the right word. It's like mm. really uh, biting a lot of samples of blues like old school blues sound um and even though if there's still some really strange and out there moments this just felt a little bit more like uh i don't know a little bit more grounded i guess just kind of, kind of like kept coming back mm-hmm. to like he was trying to get back to some sort of roots or something like that what do yeah. you think of it yeah well i mean his style of rapping where of course you know 10 years ago busts out compared to Ghostface so long ago at this point, but his mm-hmm. style, he actions never switched up who he was. But his style is, I think, more more popular, at least more common than it was in the recent years. You know, think of Griselda. You have Conway on this album. Think of Freddie Gibbs, the Alchemist, a longtime collaborator with Action, just like with Freddie. So, I think there's just a lot of appetite for for this kind of music. Again, it's not the most mainstream. Uh, hottest form of rap but there's definitely an audience for this and action himself of course has already established that audience so i think it just it it sounded familiar to me because i feel like i'm just listening to more of this music you know without having to go find it you can always listen to this music but it's not as like underground as other like throwback uh indebted new york hip-hop has been more recently so I think there's a lot of classic hallmarks of what you associate with Action Bronson, which is namely just kind of like random, random references that are just kind of off the wall, pulled out of nowhere. Sometimes they're just straight up non sequiturs. I think those are the songs that may be more challenging just because they might not make a lot of sense, but hopefully they're making you laugh like on a Tongpo with Conway. You have just just a random line that's so action bitch thought I was Craig Biggio, but I am not ho. Like who else would ever think to say that? Yeah. Uh, he's, he, <laughs> he has a bunch of like really funny lines like that. This line on Jaguar that just out of nowhere, he rhymes shore with shore, but he says, um, I'm positioned at a high ground cover in the shore. Your bitch got a face like Pauly shore, which I don't know why. just really like made me laugh. Like, <laughs> mm. uh, I also liked in, I forgot which song it was, but I wrote it down. Uh, I feel like Cuomo. I see titties. I'm like, let me grab them. Oh okay. God! <laughs> yeah, he's just going for the the political discourse. Queens you know? rapper. There you go. <laughs> um, yeah, you know, I I thought that some of the production on this was pretty interesting. Um, one moment I just want to get out of the way that I really hated was at the end of Jaguar, where it's just like a bunch of I think it's like pigs squealing or something like something, that as they're yeah. like being killed. Really hated that. Um, <laughs> but otherwise, I thought there was some like really like fun production on this. Um, Hound Dog, like I was kind of talking about. Um, well, actually, that one's actually pretty more produced. I think I'm thinking more of like Tongpo or um, um, yeah, Tongpo is the one I was thinking of specifically, where it has that really like bluesy feel to it, where it's just like the guitar being like plucked by somebody. But then he has like just like random like horns kind of like popping in every once in a while, and really feels kind of similar to some of the stuff he's done before. Um, I liked Jaws a lot. I think that's one of my favorites off this. It's a little bit more toned down, but it has that like 70s feel that you kind of feel in a lot of his songs. Mm. So sure. I don't know. There's a lot of stuff to like on here. Totally. 
I had a line I really liked on Jaguar as well. God damn, bro, you looking like a bison. Nah, dog, I look like M. Bison. Street Fighter reference. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> also, cool. on, um, I thought Estaciones was really funny where you have Hologram like dropping in to do his feature and then Action just cuts him off and starts rhyming and rapping right off the last bar. And then he completely apologizes for cutting off Hologram and Hologram restarts his feature. I thought that was like really funny. Obviously, it's staged and intentional, but like I thought that was really funny. Yeah, no, that I agree. That was a fun moment. Um, any any songs that you would say you liked more than others on this? Yeah, I think Jaguar, Kong Po, Staciones, they definitely stand out the most to me. That's the thing, too. It's like 10 tracks, 30 minutes. Like He's just in the short and sweet mode the past few years, which is always welcome. Yeah, I agree. Um, I think a song I liked a lot, I don't know if it's my favorite, but just like the overall vibe to it was Zambezi with Rock Marciano. Yeah, I think they like play off each other well, and it's just such like a like slow churning, like don't do don't do and they just both sound really great over it. So um yeah, there's a lot to like on here. Again, it's this isn't an album that I think will blow anyone away, but if you like what action does, like you're gonna like this. Um real quick for you for you, out of the four we have talked about, um White Bronco, Lamb of a Rice, Only for Dolphins, and now Coco Drillo Turbo. Yeah. Which one would you say is your favorite? It's a great question. It's either uh this one or only for dolphins. I thought white Bronco was the weakest of the group. And this is including blue chip 7,000 as well. I think white Bronco was you action seemed a little like uh, aimless at times where it just kind of like just putting words together almost, um, which he can still do convincingly, but just, I don't know. He didn't seem as inspired, but these past two albums, they seem like he's kind of back on his back on his shit, which makes sense because, you know, he seems to be, very happy with his life right now. He's lost some weight, seems to be in good spirits. So I think these two albums are probably the closest and best thing he's done since his really early work. Yeah, I would agree. I think, I think it's probably only for dolphins for me, but this one is definitely up there. Uh, it'll be interesting to listen to this back later on in the year and see where it hits for me, but uh, we'll be adding one of these songs to our now Selja best of 2022 Let's keep it moving to someone else that we haven't heard from in a year or so. I guess two years now. 2020, I think, was the last time Kalani dropped an album with uh, It Was Good Until It Wasn't, which I don't know if it was on either of our top albums of the year, but I know that Grieving made it on to at least my honorable mentions, if not my top 10 from that year. A song with James Blake that I really love. Uh, listen to again today listen to a decent amount it's on one of my favorite playlists i have it's always great and kalani just feels like an artist that's been consistently interesting and like part Mm. of like the consciousness but maybe not like leveling up in the way that i had expected her to but every time she she does pop up i'm like oh yeah she's really really great where does she sit kind of in your like sphere of female artists right now that's a great question Blue Water Road is her third album, but she also has three mixtapes. So it's really her sixth, you know, official release. And she's only just turned 27. So she's really been popping since she was a teenager. It's been a long time, almost 10 years. Uh, so there's a lot to go on. But I and uh, I, in that sense, she kind of 
predates like the modern like female R&B wave that we have right now. And I, I don't necessarily always think of her when I think of the current like female R&B wave. But she's right up there. She should be right up there because I think she has the versatility and uh, variety in her catalog to this point that not all of her contemporaries have. And that's including uh, male R&B singers as well. And I think that's what's so appealing about Kalani is that she can really switch it up and go in different directions. And that's what's so appealing. So I definitely think she's one of the best. And it's interesting to note that most of her like chart success, most of her hits or platinum certifications, that was all early part of her career, to be honest, along around like the first album, 2017. More recently, she's kind of slowed it down a little bit more, gotten more artistic, gotten more personal, and it hasn't been as successful on the charts even if she's still having like big first week sales and stuff so it's kind of interesting to see how she kind of goes up and down and moves as she really seems to make the kind of music she wants to make because there's quite the, quite a bit of range already yeah I, and I, I think that range is displayed fairly well on this album you know it's it's funny because if you go back and you listen to some of the tracks from like while we wait um, or even a couple off of it was good until it wasn't. I think there's moments where you like, kind of like you talked about, you can kind of say like, oh, you know, she sounds a lot like SZA or, you know, there, there's a lot of like LMI kind of in here and she can kind of get lumped in and then it can kind of like uh, the track changes to the next one and a whole new sound comes on. You're like, oh yeah, Kalani is, I think a, a little bit more outside the box at times. And I think that's demonstrated really well in this album for me in the transition from the first three tracks, little story, any given Sunday shooter interlude. And then you get wish I never. And that like beat comes in with that. Like, I don't even know what it is like an old hip hop hooray, like type uh, drum beat in the background. And she's just kind of like bouncing over. And I'm like, Ooh, this is something different that you don't typically hear from a lot of female R and B artists nowadays. So uh, I, I think then you get into up at night with Bieber, which, I thought it was actually pretty great <laughs> and it was nice to hear Bieber continue to put out some good stuff. Feels like he's kind of found his footing again after some, uh, you know, not so good moments <laughs> in the past and the last changes. Couple. Yeah. Changes. Exactly. <laughs> but um, yeah, I, I think the, I think overall my takeaway from blue water road was just Kalani remains interesting. She remains an R and B you know, female pop artist who's just uh, pushing boundaries, but still kind of comfortable with, with who she is, which is nice. How'd you feel about it? Yeah, I, I liked it quite a bit. I think there's the range is, is on this very album and you have great examples of, I think various uh, eras sounds mm-hmm. in the Kalani catalog to this point. Uh, any given Sunday track two, featuring blast man that one is very reminiscent of her debut single fuck with you fwu like Mm. kalani not afraid to mix in some hip-hop flows you know repping bay there on top of that it uh you know i think i wish i never it's kind of along along the same uh along the same lines because that uh up-tempo uh, drum line is very reminiscent of hip hop, and that's because it's actually a sample from Slick Rick's children's story, one of the classic golden age rap songs. 
and I think she she just has like an amazing line in that. It's like, call, call me daddy for all your bitches in the lobby, in front of all your bitches in the lobby, however she says it. It's like, I think uh, Wish I Never and Any Given Sunday, as well as Up at Night, which you mentioned with Bieber, are that's just like a kind of a perfect encapsulation of like what, what's what Kalani used to do, but it also kind of makes sense in what she's doing now because she can mix it in with songs later on the track list like, uh, like Melt. You know, mm-hmm. which are much more traditional, slower R&B tracks. So I'm always going to gravitate to these more upbeat songs, which is really great on my end to hear that she's still got these in her because I think yeah. these are some of her best tracks. Yeah, I completely agree with you. And, you know, another track I'd kind of put in that same uh, mold for me of the songs that blew me away, at least in terms of production, was Alter. I think some of the delivery on that and the singing is a lot more traditional sounding r&b but some of that production is almost kind of like beach housey in a sense you know and it has that like moment where it breaks into the um chorus and that chorus is just so sticky (laughs) she just sings it in such a beautiful way it's really really impressive and um you know on top of those tracks you mentioned and then a couple at the end there I i was a little disappointed with wondering wandering you know you get uh thundercat on that and i think i kind of expected that to pop a little bit more but i think start to finish this was a really great listen and uh kalani's just really nice to have in our lives like she's someone that whenever we have to listen to her i'm like oh nice kalani i'll never disappointed with it totally totally i also want to shout out more than i should the song with jesse reyes specifically the production because if you listen in the beginning of the song you can hear something that sounds very reminiscent to uh ginny wine's pony the mm. er, 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 like that you know the, the the production on pony that everyone knows it's not credited as an official sample at this time but i swear that's where that's lifted from very <laughs> immediately brought me back yeah that that's a great call you know i was i was listening to it and i was like huh like I, that's it was like definitely unlocking something but i wasn't sure but i think that was probably it um you know just another song i just wanted to give a little notice to uh is sid is on Get Me Started, the mm. track after the one Up At Night with Bieber. A, a, bit, un, uh, a bit, bit forgettable for me out of, yeah. I think, all the, the moments with guests on this. You know, the Jesse Reyes track you mentioned, I think even some of their, like, back and forth and the way that's produced with their, like, vocals interplaying is a lot more memorable. But Sid almost kind of, like, came away on this for me. And I was a little disappointed. I agree. I, I just don't know if they're the best match, honestly. Sid just, yeah, by design, doesn't have a bite like that yeah. whereas Kalani has a lot of bite I just don't <laughs> think it, it they didn't juxtapose each other I think the way they thought it would so yeah I wasn't a big fan of that one either um any other thoughts on this I mean we're gonna probably add a one or two songs to the playlist but any other thoughts no I think I think it's quite good you know I I hope Kalani continues to stay uh stay mainstream you know this is another Atlantic release she's still and hopefully this gets more promo than her last record did where she had kind of some back and forth with the label over the release uh, timing and stuff like that. But I mean, if we recall, like due to all her connections and all that, Kalani's had some big features recently on some great tracks. Think, look no further than the Charlie Puth joint, the Cardi song, uh, heebie-jeebies with Amine, playing with me with Kyle. Like She's got some big features. Of course, the Suicide Squad song is a monster track. Like, I want, I'm looking forward to hearing more of her on other people's music too, because she's also proven that she's a great guest. 
Yeah, absolutely. Kalani's fantastic. Go check her out. Her song, the songs we had from her album on tour now, such a best of 2022 playlist on Spotify. Let's move from music to TV where the offer dropped its first three uh, episodes. We're going to be talking about the first two today. Um, as we mentioned, there's a lot of TV to get to this week and they were trying to stay on top of. So we weren't able to watch all three of these, um, but I think they're about plus. I think you kind of get the gist from the at least the first one or two of what this show is going to be like. Um, the offer detailing the the making of a, a movie. I think some people have heard of The Godfather from 1972. What's that? Uh, yeah, right. I actually was watching The Godfather this weekend because Paramount was just playing it over and over because mm. this was going on. And man, it really does suck you in. It is such a rewatchable movie from any point. Um, I think the point yeah. I tuned in on was. Michael at the restaurant when he, he ah, kills. Yes. Yeah. And it just a lot. So McCluskey. Yeah. Just such a, a tense moment. And then like everything after that, it's like, oh, yeah, this scene's coming up. I'll just stick around for the next 20 minutes. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, this scene's coming there up. goes three hours. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You don't talk to a guy like Mo Green like that. Oh, man. <laughs> such great delivery. Love that line. Uh, anyways, this uh, mini series is uh, being. Uh, it was created by Michael uh, Tolkien, um, and it's sorry, uh, sorry, uh, sorry, Miles Teller, uh, Matthew Good, Juno Temple, Dan Fogler, a couple other people. Colin Hanks uh, might be any yeah. we'll recognize from this, but you know, I, I, I kind of expect a little bit more. I, I've only seen the first episode; they've seen the first two. I kind of expect a little bit more from this. Um, I think you have such a great idea right the um making of this movie that has so much drama around it so many different aspects you have so many stars around it, so many big names and uh obviously they they try to work in some nods to the actual film but something about it just was falling a little bit flat for me in the first episode and i was a little bit not not totally taken by it you've seen too i'm wondering if, if you, maybe it's a little different after the first episode but i wasn't as captured by this as i expected to be how was your experience watching yeah i agree this is a major letdown for me for a few reasons also this series is going to be 10 episodes which just immediately feels way too long and padded out and unsatisfying don't know if i'm going to make it through those the problem that the reason the offer is so disappointing is because as you said the appeal of this subject of this series is so strong the the making of the godfather is so famous for how troubled it was and how close this movie was to being shut down and coppola being fired and robert evans this huge personality as that the head of paramount at the time like there's so much and of course the little real life mafia's uh involvement on the periphery like there's so much real life interesting drama here that's been well documented in academia to this point and this show just feels like kind of a low rent not at this and i was honestly quite put off by the very first scene where i believe we're introduced to giovanni ribisi's uh colombo uh jo- joseph colombo where the guy literally says leave the cannoli it's like i feel like th- that kind of obvious like referencing to to the obviously a famous line from the film it's just comes across as pandering to me and like later on throughout the first two episodes that i've seen it's like you have dan fogler's Coppola like explaining what the movie means and you have Mario Puzo the author of the book the film's based on you have him explaining 
like who Michael is and who Don Corleone is. And it's like, you know, you don't have to explain the themes and characters of the most famous and popular American movie of all time. People love this movie. People know the shit out of this movie. Don't treat them like fucking kindergartners. I don't know who this show is for because it's going to piss off people that really know their shit. And I don't know if it's engaging enough for more casual fans beyond being like, oh, I know who that is. You know, like there's no depth here. And it's honestly really disappointing. Yeah, you know, I I, I agree with with, uh, what you're saying about who is this really for? Because I think, like you said, there's there were some moments and some nods to things with the Godfather that just felt like so half-baked maybe not as like sly as they thought it would be um and you know i think for me i I also just kind of found myself feeling like even in the first episode they were spinning their wheels a little bit i mean it takes about i don't know 40 minutes of the episode to finally get to the godfather it's all about albert ruddy's like uh, come up in his career as you know uh, the creator behind hogan's heroes uh and then a couple other movies before he finally gets kind of tasked with reviving this uh, book uh, script I, movie idea that isn't fully formed yet and <laughs> you know I, I do have to say I really like Matthew Good he's really going yeah. for it as Robert Evans and I had no idea he was British uh, amazing voice work I, I thought he was absolutely like captivating every time he's on screen and I think playing in a character like Robert Evans is uh, a lot to work with so it makes sense that maybe you're drawn to him but outside of him, I didn't really find any of the other people in the show really that captivating. Like Mario Puzo, played by Patrick Gallo, maybe Just a cliche. But yeah, he had. I think the the moment I liked the most is the when he you know is confronted by Frank Sinatra. Uh, right, <laughs> but, which is real. That did happen. Yeah, but also like, you know, it it felt very just kind of like cookie cutter interaction, like exactly what you expected and. Um, didn't really feel like it brought a lot to it for me. Uh, another moment I liked, I do want to say, is when you get, uh, I forgot who it was, playing Redford. Um, just like interesting to see. <laughs> their, he their looked like guys. Robert Redford, too. That was good. <laughs> he did. He did. I was <laughs> I was pretty impressed. Um, but, you know, outside of that, I didn't really find too much of this to be that interesting. From the second episode, what, what moments really stood out to you? Yeah, second episode, that's where we meet the guy playing Al Pacino. Of course, this is okay. young Al Pacino, like um, Panic at Needle Park hasn't even come out yet. So he's really just the theater presence in New York. I think the performance is all right. I mean, this is kind of like the, the, the soft spoken Al, you know, it, obviously this is this way before uh, who I Al, but like, it's all right. He definitely looks like him. And I, we haven't met um the actor who plays Marlon Brando yet, but Dustin Chambers. Yeah, but uh, episode two, it's just kind of more of the same. Like, we're taking our time here, and, like, it's weird to feel like this show would spin its wheels about anything because there's such true drama in the reality of what happened, and we're just not getting it. Like, I, I don't, I don't, I think Miles Teller's, like, voice uh, accent he's putting on it is all right, but the performance itself, he's just kind of, like, sleepwalking here as Al yeah. Ruddy. And, uh, in general, I think a lot of a lot of like insider people have kind of taken issue with how ruddy centric this film seems to be. Either way, I don't mind them taking liberties. I know like the timelines of when things are happening are very jumbled, but uh, like Juno Temple, I think she's pretty fun as the secretary to Ruddy. Saw so fine performance, but like it's a nothing part because it's 
a secretary in the fucking 70s in Hollywood. Like, obviously, it's nothing part. Like, they didn't get to do anything. So, and I think, honestly, it's probably the most offensive performance to me. I think Giovanni Ribisi is very miscast as Columbo. Yeah. I don't like the accent. I just don't find him commanding. Like, he can look up what Columbo looks like. It's not like he's like that far off, but he just doesn't. I don't think he has the right energy here. And from what I've read, and for people that have seen further on, like some of the other people that are going to be portrayed, like like Joe Gallo, for example, are just like super cliche and stuff. So I just, yeah, I'm I'm, I'm just I'm just very disappointed, and just because I had so much uh, expectation for it, knowing about the drama, you know, it's. I guess not everyone knows about the drama the way everyone knows about the movie itself, but like, I feel like going in because I had some prior knowledge, I'm even more disappointed by just how cookie cutter it sounds and feels. Yeah, I I agree. Um, You know, I'm trying to think of like some things that maybe were, I found redeeming about it. I thought it was pretty funny. The, uh, the scene where Ruddy has to go in and pitch why they should make the Godfather, how he's going to do it. And he's like, I'm going to make like a icy blue nightmare of, your life or something like that and everybody like loved it i thought that was pretty funny and just like this absurd but probably fairly accurate way of like how some of these things got done back then (laughs) and probably still do at times. right just like this one line pitch can make such a difference um who who plays ruddy's girlfriend i'm forgetting but oh i don't remember yeah but she she feels like every time she's on screen she's like the owner of uh, a hotel and you know teller ends up hooking up there like right away um she feels like she should get to do more but <laughs> uh she's mm. just kind of like the the sidekick to tell her and yeah i think i think that's another difficult part of this race right? there's so many like people to follow and things to kind of keep track of and i don't know if the show does a great job of like investing you enough to like keep track of who all these people are outside of the guys that you obviously know already so this is this might not be one that i want to come back to how are you feeling about it yeah, I, I I agree. You know, um, in terms of like things I like, I like it's just kind of like minor things. Like I feel like uh, Michael Raspoli, who we've who's been in tons of things. We know him recently from Rudy Pippolo on the Deuce. He's cast as Tommy Lucchese. He's like, yeah, you know, a very convincing mobster. Nice job there. I liked when we get first introduced to Francis Ford Coppola. You see in the background, completely unsaid. You actually see like George Lucas chilling there in the back of the office it looks just like young george lucas with the glasses and the hair i was like oh nice touch there if you know you know kind of thing yeah but like i just feel like dramatically and like the screenwriting is just it's just so rote it's so basic it's very very disappointing honestly at this point i'm just invested in uh the film that's being developed around this subject that was announced about a year and a half ago called francis and the godfather from barry levinson with jake gyllenhaal playing robert evans and oscar isaac playing francis ford coppola please make that yeah well i I think with that talent you're obviously going to want to watch that one over this but you know paramount plus want to get it out there don't blame them at all um any last thoughts i mean i'm i'm ready to move on to something a little little different um i'm out i would just say watch (laughs) the godfather again instead well dave i we i watched the first two episodes of under the banner of heaven on fx starring andrew garfield uh Wyatt Russell who you know great look for our uh our Captain America 2.0 uh, what, what was his name in that show again? I was just gonna say fuck I don't remember the name yeah I don't remember um, what they called him uh, Patriot no uh man um 
you know, Briggs bad. Valentino shows up at the yeah. end. We know who he is. We just forget the name. His name was John Walker. I just remember what yes. the superhero name was. Um, U.S. Agent. Yeah. Is that his name? Hold on, I'm gonna look it up as this we go. Is a really bad but, start to the segment. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, a couple of other um, things that you see him in recently. Uh, he was he was just called Captain America. But yeah, U.S. Agent was who he was by the end when he's recruited by. Um, yes. Uh, Olivia Louis Dreyfus. So yeah. Um, anyways, getting back to this, the the comeback for Daisy Edgar Jones, Sam Worthington. So you know, a couple it's of the comeback uh, for Sam Worthington, my guy. Right. <laughs> I, I guess I guess the next like big thing we've seen D- Daisy Edgar Jones, in, yep. right? Mm-hmm. After yep. uh, normal people. So a, a lot of intrigue around this. Uh, adapting a John Krakauer book from uh, early two thousands, uh, based on a true story about the uh, the juxtaposition of the up you know up uh arising or i don't know if that's the right word the growth of latter-day saints uh religion and then this murder from I believe it was late 90s so yeah. uh, 80s 84 sorry 80s sorry um so a lot of uh, you know there's a lot going on here and i think w- maybe the place to start is like you don't get andrew garfield on tv too too much how, how how did you feel about him in these first two episodes? Did you like his performance? How were you feeling about it? Yeah, I quite enjoyed Andrew Garfield in Under the Banner of Heaven to this point. I think he's a very convincing uh, detective character, sure. But I think he's very convincing for this specific character, which I believe is just a fictional character for the sake of the, the story, not from the actual real life. This detective character, Garfield's great at this because... He brings like the humanity that he always wears on his sleeve in all of his roles as an actor. He brings that to this character so perfectly because that's who this character is. This is a character who's very devout in his Mormon faith and his personal beliefs and shows that, shows his true feelings when he's doing his job as an investigator, as a detective. And I think Garfield's a perfect fit for this kind of character, this kind of role. And I really love that they cast Gil Birmingham uh yeah as his partner the more grizzled uh non-believer non-mormon uh detective of course gil birmingham everyone knows him from many supporting roles like in hell or high water and yellowstone i think this is a great look for him great and they have great chemistry for the first two episodes but yeah i think garf garfield doing tv um leading role i think he's perfectly cast for this kind of story which you know, I think kind of gives you a lot of the things you probably associate with these kind of like true crime miniseries, which is kind of the true detective, uh, the vibe, right? Right. We, we have yeah. we have the we have cult status and fun, fundamentalist religious groups. Check. We have yeah. crisis of faith between the detective. Check. Like it's all the things. Uh, sorry, movie stars. It has all the things we associate with true detective and the appeal of that as a series, as a true crime series. This one just so happens to be based off real events from a John Krakauer book. John Krakauer, the author of Into the Wild and Into Thin Air. This is probably the, his third of the, his three big works. So I think it's a very appealing uh, miniseries. And I, I think just having this kind of examination of the Mormon faith and the relationship with more fundamentalist groups, I think is obviously always prescient. But the fact that we're getting this tackled by Dustin Lance Black, someone raised Mormon, who also happens to be an Oscar-winning screenwriter. Like, there's just a lot of pedigree going on here. 
Yeah, you know, I agree. I think I think Garfield is really good. I think what's tough is uh, sitting with these characters who I may not totally align with their their perspectives on things. Uh, LBS uh, ideology may not be the best fit for me. And it's funny because I feel like Garfield the whole time, like if you're looking at if you're watching on YouTube.com, the picture I have in the background, he's looking so distressed or the picture that Dave has is the cover. And he's like rubbing his like hand, his hands on his forehead because he's so stressed out. And that's just in like these first two episodes. He's just so stressed this whole time. Mm-hmm. I'm like, damn, this guy really is going through it. I mean, given he witnesses and, and is investigating a grisly murder of a woman and a, a young child. So understandable that he might be feeling this way but yeah the the way everything is kind of funneled through this lens of lds really can be uh just like a turnoff to me at points but i i agree i think it's still really interesting and i think one of the most interesting aspects of the lds aspect of it is how they're juxtaposing him who is very devout but not i wouldn't say fully extremist with these people who are like Right. Overly devout, extreme LDS, like very yeah, rigid fundamentalist. thinking. Yes, exactly. And how they they perceive these things. And he's like, oh, I can't even get to the level of like what they consider a devout person. Yeah. in this. So right. I think that's pretty interesting to examine. Um, and then I wanted to ask, like, Daisy Edgar Jones, how would you feel about her in these first two episodes? Yeah, well, I, I, I think she's good. That the problem, of course, is that we have to experience her character only via flashbacks because she's the one who gets killed. So in a sense, it's a bit of like, you know, the fridging dead girl detective thing that we know, but I think there's enough going on here that we go beyond that kind of trope. And we're, it's kind of just all the flashback before we're going to get Daisy Edgar Jones. And I feel like you kind of, we kind of know a lot of these beats. I'm curious to see what else comes up in the subsequent five episodes we haven't seen yet, just because, I feel like we kind of already know it's like what, why, why she uh, pissed off certain people in the, in the family and why that probably drove the crazy people to kill her. Um, What else is there to glean from this character already? I'm actually kind of curious if there's enough meat on that bone, but Jones is, is Edgar Jones is good in it. And obviously a big fan of hers, this part of her early career. Um, I, I think that's, Another interesting aspect with the show, too, is we have three timelines. You have, obviously, the present-day timeline with Garfield. You have all the flashbacks with the family, learning more about them. And I think that's important context, especially the way it's kind of uh, being told. But the third timeline is probably the biggest biggest challenge, which is seems very unnecessary, which is basically a complete throwback timeline to the origins of mormons and the latter-day church of latter-day saints with following around joseph smith the founder of the religion like it also doesn't seem to add anything to the series through two episodes i really don't know why we have that timeline at all but i, I do like the uh, the past timeline with daisy edgar jones even if it can be a bit of a tough hang to be within this like brand of mormonism that's very sexist yeah, I, I think that's a um I think that is like a, a true nod to the book, you know, that choice to follow around um the the third timeline like you talked about, the Joseph right. Smith story. 
Um, and one that they definitely could have just like sprinkled in a little bit more than, than they have in these first two episodes. I, I found myself feeling completely taken out when they go back to that stuff. Cause not only is it like incredibly brutal and this is already a brutal story, but also, like you said, just feels a lot less interesting. And, uh, I, I just did not really jive with that, but, um, yeah, I think they were probably trying to rope in a lot of what Krakauer wrote as he's kind of comparing these yeah, two stories. Um, you know, there, like, like we mentioned, there's a bunch of other people kind of as these, uh, you know, supporting characters, Sam Worthington, Wyatt Russell, um, the guy who plays the, the husband, Alan, uh, Billy Howie gets a lot of uh, time in these first two episodes who, who stood out to you the most so far. Right. And uh, Roy Culkin as well. The youngest Culkin yes. brother. Um, so I mentioned Gil Birmingham already, but of the other Lafferty's, you know, this family, the Utah Kennedys, of, uh, <laughs> as they're explained to us, it has to be Billy Halley for me, man. Alan, the one whose wife and child get killed. Because in those confessional scenes where he's just talking on the bench in the station to Garfield, that dude was like Michael Shannon in those scenes. Yeah. I don't know if you noticed that, but he sounded and had the mannerisms of Michael Shannon, which is a big compliment, obviously. I thought he was awesome in that. Billy Howell, he's been around. He was in Outlaw King, which, of course, was the most recent movie from David McKenzie, who directed the first two episodes of this series. Um, yeah, I thought Howie was the clear standout. Sam Worthington, honestly, just happy to see him in something more uh, high profile. You know, he hasn't been around too, too much recently. Of course, he'll be back soon in Avatar, too, but that's a conversation for another day. Yeah, no, I agree. I, I think. Uh, how he clearly stands out his like you mentioned his mannerisms are so perfect and like it really uh just like they really capture you they really grab you and it feels very convincing the way he's kind of talking about all this stuff i found found all of that to be really great i have to say i i think wyatt russell also especially in episode two has a couple of moments where you start to see him kind of uh getting to show off a little bit and i think just the way that when the dad leaves, how much he shifts and changes and you kind of get more of the backstory about what kind of guy he is from his wife talking with Daisy Edgar Jones. Uh, yeah. I think that's all really, really interesting and kind of seeing that that right. character arc is cool to me. Well, that's also what I appreciate about this show is it's very unflinching in its portrayal of the Lafferty family. You know, it's like in a sense, there's an objective way to tell this story because we're at the center of a real life crime here. There's a true crime angle to this but the show is unflinching in its portrayal of the issues with the Mormon faith or at least fundamentalist aspects of the Mormon faith. And I appreciate that, again, like Dustin Lance Black knows a thing or two about that coming from that world. And he's bringing that in, bringing that to us as the showrunner here. But I really, I really like how they're kind of just putting on blast and making you think that these people are clowns these people are jokes and they're 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 frauds and you even have like garfield you know detective uh pyre he's basically like he just kind of like shakes his head when he hears these like ridiculous like crazy libertarian views of the of law and taxation and stuff and it's like i like how they just don't hold anything back they just kind of blast these people yeah no i i appreciate that too um yeah, it's it's definitely a show that has caught my interest. I, I'm looking forward to working my way through this. I think it's only like six episodes or something like that. So yeah, I think it I think it's seven. So there's seven. five more. 
So uh, probably in a few more weeks, we'll be checking FX back on, on it. But uh, give us your, your thoughts. Uh, drop them below in a comment on what you think so far about Under the Banner of Heaven. Now, Dave, let's move on to another crime story. Tokyo Vice, which yep. r- wrapped up its first season. And I say first season, maybe only season. I don't, right. I don't think we've Unclear heard at this time. Yeah, been renewed yet as of recording. But, um, you know, I found this to be a really, really fun watch. Um, I think at times a little bit uh, like wheel spinny and maybe not as uh, propulsive as some of the early episodes were in the middle of the season. But overall, I think there's a lot to like about this season. Um, you know, when we when we talked about it in the first uh, few episodes that dropped back on April 7th, Michael Mann directs the first one. I think the first episode's probably yep. the, my favorite of the season. But throughout, I think the whole vibe of the show is really well executed by all the directors and the writers. Elgort's great. Uh, Ken Watanabe's great. Um, yeah, and I also have to say I really like the guy who plays Sato. Um, I think he's really good this season. But Joe Kasamatsu. Yes. Um, so there, there's a lot of really good performances. How did you feel about this first season of Tokyo Vice? Yeah, so I enjoyed the show. And I think, and I'm happy I enjoyed the show because the show does fall off a little bit from a really strong and engaging start. Part of that, of course, is just Michael Mann's doing it. And his visual style still more or less holds true throughout the whole series, which is great. I'm really glad that he was able to kind of establish the series, even though he wasn't going to direct the whole thing, but he was still an EP of the whole thing. And the issue, though, is like you said, the plot the plot gets a little, I don't want to say convoluted, because it's actually not that convoluted. I think it's almost smaller in scale than you're initially led to believe, because there's some threads that are introduced early on that are kind of dropped or, or ignored. You know, um, the, the suicides and um, you know, some ancillary characters is kind of like kind of left where it is. That being said, though, I still really enjoy the show because in the acting strong and the world building is just really impressive. And, you know, crime story set among the world of the Yakuza. I mean, yeah, it's great. Like, sign me up. Yeah. And all, all the exterior shots look awesome. Just like being in Shinjuku, Japan is great and watching Tokyo Vice while I'm also watching Pajinko I think is very instructive because they're coming at two different times distinct times for Japan modern day Japan specifically at the start and end of that lost decades period after the Japanese economy collapsed so Tokyo Vice we're kind of in the resurgence of Japan as Pajinko we're about to go into the downfall right like uh, it, it was really cool to see these two worlds portrayed at the same time because i'm watching both series um but i mean even again even though the plot isn't super um super super engaging i don't know like i feel like we kind of get set in our ways kind of early with uh jake with sato with katagiri like that's still okay because i enjoy all the performances elgort did not get in the way with this i think he did a really good job you know thoughts about elgort aside like i think he did a, a good job and um, I, I I still enjoyed my time with the show, even though it probably left me a little wanting in the plot perspective by the end. Yeah, and you know, I I was kind of surprised to see where the show ended up for this season, um, especially without a second season definitely coming. I felt yeah. like there was a lot 
not told and a lot of uh, lack of resolution. And it was funny because when we were going to record today, I watched this uh, this past, I think, Thursday or Friday. And I was like, man, when is this last episode dropping? Because there's got to be another one, right? There's got to be more tough. To <laughs> yeah, it kind of kind of left me in a tough spot. Um, you know, the, especially in this final episode, you have Sato, um, you know, potentially being killed. Although I think I think we see him in the flashback at the beginning of the season. So I think we know he doesn't die. I don't know. Oh, I didn't even think of that. Um, you know, you you have Rachel Keller's character with like the most obvious like oh you're about to be played like what are you doing yeah. like of all time I, I, we knew all that cash was getting taken the moment we saw oh it in the cupboard god so but like the way the way you did it you're like you're so savvy and then this is how you like lose this like what are you doing um yeah and then you also have elgor just kind of on the out and out it felt like the end of empire strikes back you know what <laughs> yeah. looking over his back but it's the first season like i we, we Right. These like good guys don't get any wins here. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, Ishida still there. Mm-hmm. Tazawa, uh, still, uh, Tazawa still actually stronger than ever. You know, it's like you're very much like it's a period, but not the end of the story. And I, I would, I would like to see more just because I think just being in this world and having a strong presence like Ken Watanabe to like ground everything. And he did such. It does such a good job of kind of introducing Jake and introducing the audience to like the the rules of the world and how the pol- what the police chooses to investigate versus uh, leave alone or at least not overtly penalize. Like learning all about the 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 rhythms of you know the underground of Tokyo in the uh, in the nineties, late nineties. It's very great, and I would just like to spend more time in it. Maybe once we advance to a different thread here you know um i think it's interesting to note that on the day of the finale coming out you had a uh piece come out in the hollywood reporter where a lot of people were kind of questioning the veracity of jake adelstein's memoir and kind of kind of at the very least explain that jake adelstein seems to be the kind of guy who will embellish things at the same time though I don't think that really should affect the show at all because the show is taking plenty of liberties because it's a show. It's going to fictionalize things. So I really actually don't care too much about that. I really hope that they uh, give this more room to room to go because I think the Sato character was a really rewarding one to, to be with probably the best character of the series. And, you know, maybe if we were spending perhaps a little less time with Sam, with Rachel Keller and, and the club, I think that would probably benefit the show overall. But, I um, definitely feel out of the three, I guess, well, I guess there's four main characters out of the four main characters. Uh, Rachel, uh, Sam's storyline is definitely the storyline I found myself least interested in. Um, Sato, by far the most interesting, not only for his own arc, but what it was saying about why people may turn to the Yakuza as like an opportunity, kind of the culture around that, the culture of honor, the culture of, uh, you know, taking responsibility. I thought all that stuff was really interesting. In fact, I think one of my favorite episodes is when um, uh, Sato's like main boss, um, I'm forgetting which one he was. Um, Uh, Ishida. Yes. Yes. When, when Ishida sniffs out who like the rat is and it's, Sato's like supervisor, like yeah, mentor. Yeah, brought him in. His his yeah. father figure, more basically. 
And that that like standoff on top of that roof, I thought was really, really tense and just one of my favorite moments. And, you know, the way that he sacrifices himself to, you know, not make Sato make this horrible choice that he had to make was really, really um, just really like captivating. Um, and then when it comes to Jake, I think the, the thing I liked most about Jake Outside of, you know, some of the stuff with him and Ken Watanabe, I think it's just him exploring the city. You know, him just going around Tokyo, going to nightclubs, like uh, going to the batting cages with his friends, like having drinks and dinner with people. Like I found all that to be a lot more interesting, like that world building you talked about, than a lot of the like chasing stories and stuff like that. So I don't know. I just I, I was just so much more taken by the actual like cultural aspect of it than I think some of the storytelling by the end. And that's why I think there's interesting potential for a second season because, you know, like uh, Miyamoto's dead, you know, the, uh, mm-hmm. the other detective character we came to know. And we have this Ishida Sazawa like, like war about to blow up, right? But you would hope that like another season would still make room for all those other things that you just laid out. And, you know, you can introduce other characters. Perhaps uh, the Sam storyline is ended and then she's less of a presence i don't i see i don't know i feel we're kind of committed to a lot of things though still you know to get the the yakuza conflict about to kick off sam at her lowest point like i think we're kind of committed to a lot of things so that if they do make a second season it it probably won't go as far away from this first season as we perhaps wanted to yeah either way though i, d- I did like uh just kind of seeing jake do things like one of those nightclub scenes, you've got to really see how tall El Gore is. He was towering over everyone. He's like over a head taller than everyone on the floor. But yeah. uh, I love, I mean, just because I'm a big sync fan, I really love the interplay between Jake and Sato in the car about Backstreet Boys versus NSYNC. NSYNC are the copycats. And yeah. later on in the episode, they pay it off, something I did not see coming. And tearing up my heart plays on the dance floor and they flip each other off. That was amazing. Yeah, fantastic moments with uh, Backstreet Boys and NSYNC in this. Also, just really funny when Sato's like, yeah, you know that this is what uh, the what, what this song, I Want It That Way, is about. And Jake's like, no, it's not. He's totally like, taken aback by it. And then he talks to his other friends about it later. And they're like, yeah, everybody knows that. And I just thought that was that hilarious. Way. Everyone yeah. knows. <laughs> that way. Come on. Everyone knows <laughs> it. Hilarious. Just great payoff. Um, any other like episodes, moments that you really liked? Mm. I thought episode six was cool just for kind of classic like crime storytelling where you get to see this council, this like Yakuza, mm-hmm. like higher up council, all these other figures we yeah. don't know. Love seeing that. I mean, no matter what, like if it's the, the Casa Nostra mafia meeting, show it to me, you know, anytime you can see that, it's awesome. Um, yeah, you know, I think, um, I think really the, the early stuff is, is honestly the best where you just kind of sitting in the noir of it all, just kind of getting drenched in this world. And then once the later episodes, it's just a ton of plot and it's not as interesting as the early stuff. Yeah, I completely agree. Um, I, I loved that scene with like the, the council and Tazawa having to like beg Kadanadis and beg to uh, Yoshida about it or uh, yeah, Yoshida. Right. Um, or Ishida, sorry. The last moment I just kind of wanted to highlight, or I guess relationship, was um, Jake and his supervisor, uh, Emmy, who yes. 
I was standing them by the end. Like, get Rachel out of here. Get Rachel Keller out of here. Sam out of here. I, I just wanted to see Jake and, and Emmy get together. They had some real uh, real connection there, I felt. Really, really yeah. great stuff. Yeah, I think in a second season, you definitely want to have more Emmy, more of uh, Rinko Kikuchi, just because that's another interesting character. That Another parallel to Pachinko, a, uh, a Zanichi, a Korean person in Japan, living in Japan full time. And what that's like, you have another pachinko moment where there's like the power of language, where the person they're trying to interview and talk to realizes that she's Korean and like kind of lets his guard down a little bit. You know, I think there's a lot of room for for her to be a bigger presence. And just in general, there's more room, I think, for just kind of like the awesome like newsroom beats. There's, There's a lot of drama in the old school, classic, traditional newsroom that would be, you know, of this time. And we kind of get away from that again because we get really stuck on all these plot threads with Jake. But the core, again, the core foundation here is still really appealing. I, I do think if there is a second season, which I really hope there is, I think you're going to get a little bit more of the like procedural newsroom stuff, like a bit, like a very like spotlight feel, because the story that ultimately Jake break or the the real life uh, Adelstein breaks is about these yakuza higher ups basically getting these like kidney transplants or something like that yeah, or these they get to cut the line at ucla by being trans- donors right cut the line and get kidney transplants in the u.s after making big donations to like the hospital and like the hospital system and this was all set up by having an agreement with the fbi to turn some uh, information about like the financial dealings of the yakuza and apparently the the evidence they did turn didn't amount to much. And Jake Adelstein in real life actually was able to kind of expose this. Which, yeah, yeah um, cutting the line for for these types, you know, pisses off the common man. So it'd be interesting to see if we actually get that far because Jake Adelstein did have a long career uh, in Japan. Yeah. So I don't know if we're going to spend that much time with the show. Who knows? I, I do think they'd have to make some liberties to the timeline for sure. Um, but I, I could see them maybe, you know, especially because the way they were going about this season was this very like gotcha moment where they were trying to expose this heroin that was being brought over on the plane and the, the dirty cop kind of thwarts that plan. And then, you know, obviously things turn bad for all the main characters outside of Tozawa. I wonder if the move is going to be like to take these people down. We have to do things more like by the book, like actually like tell the story build it not try to just get it in the paper quickly type of thing so i could see that being the turn that they make but i just wonder if that will be too far away from what the show has been in this first season and if that will be something people want to watch so definitely interesting i I think i'd recommend this to a lot of people i actually have recommended it to a few people to uh, get caught up on so check it out but dave you mentioned before that pachinko also wrapped up this past weekend (laughs) <laughs> you know and it's funny because this was another show it wrapped up and i was like there's gotta be another episode coming out right like there's gotta be another like step to this pachinko is a, is a show that we know we're getting the second season to at least so there's yes. a lot of a lot more investment into this so i'm looking forward to watching the second season because gotta say this first season i thought it was a home run i i love so much about it i love so much about the storytelling just mm-hmm. couldn't have been more impressed with it. How did you feel about season one of Pachinko? Yeah, I would say Pachinko season one, the best, if not one of the best shows of the year thus far. I think for me, it's 
this and Station Eleven are my top two contenders at this point. Mm. You know, four months through, I thought it was really impressive the entire time because it's such an awesome execution of vision with scope. It's such a large, grand scale story, and it really lands. It manages to juggle several timelines going back and forth throughout and everything is paying off all these emotional beats continuing to hit and it still finds a way to surprise you you know as you said the way the series ends it's like well there's a lot of meat on the bone where solomon's at in the plot right shit yeah can't wait to see more of that um damn you know hansu we've just just scratched the surface of his 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 story, his origins, of course, amazing episode seven, which is um, completely creation of the show, not from the book, where we learn about basically how Hansu became who he is when we're introduced to him earlier in the series. Uh, I, I really can't can't help but be impressed with just the whole vision of the series. And I think Koganata and Justin Chan as the co-directors of all eight episodes just absolutely smash it. Like I think it's really impressive show that just lands all these emotional beats with excellent acting like it's everything works yeah you know station 11 being one of those shows that ends in january of this year is so unfortunate because i kind of forgot that it came out this year (laughs) yeah this is definitely my number one and uh, episode seven chapter seven directed by koganada is definitely my number one episode of tv this year maybe rivaling a couple from station 11 but like you talked about just an absolute triumph um not only visually but the way that the story is told of it uh and the last like 40 minutes are just so tense and so captivating and uh you know i re recreating the 19 29 1932 uh 23 23 wow even earlier 1923 canto earthquake canto earthquake and just uh totally uh amazing storytelling amazing uh visuals just if you if you're haven't watched the show you you should watch but that episode i think you could even just watch and appreciate on its own if you really wanted to right you wouldn't understand some of the the early stuff but you you could get enough of it to still enjoy the episode sure um but yeah going back to the storytelling aspect i mean the way the timelines all intersected i was so impressed that they pulled off like jumping back and forth that much usually to a show that's a huge boundary to actually like making a coherent show that kind of pays off all this but i found it all to be incredibly uh worthwhile and i don't i don't know if there's like a wasted scene in the show like everything had meaning everything uh complements another part of the story and just grew out your understanding of these people so much yeah. more and just just really impressive one of my favorite touches with how they juggle the various threads and timelines is that we'll often hear the last piece of dialogue, the last line from a, actually, sorry, we'll actually hear like the first piece of dialogue from a brand new scene, but it'll be over the image of the last scene Mm -hmm. we just finished watching. And every time that individual piece of dialogue is applicable to the scene we just watched and the scene we're about to watch. And goes into this whole theme of like the power of language that is so central to pachinko obvious note of course the subtitles for the yeah. us non-korean and japanese speakers 
are color coded based on when they speak Japanese versus when they speak Korean. And it really hits home the meaning of the intentionality of when they switch what language they speak, again, for us non-speakers. And it connects again to just the whole, the whole theme of, of the series and Sunja's journey about what it's like to leave your home permanently, or at least permanently for decades on end, and be one of these Zainichi, these Korean expats in Japan that feel like people without a country, people without a state. And they do such a good job with everything in the present day timeline with Solomon because of that, uh, the grandmother character, the woman who won't sell her house to the bank that wants the land. And you learn about the power, the simple power of white rice made actually from Korea versus in Japan and how it means so much to Sunja and the other woman and Solomon can't tell the difference. Right. I did. I just really like how they weave everything together with like the, the true sense of community and the power of language because everything just pays off and it's set up throughout multiple episodes throughout the course of the series that all these, you know, these things really, really land. I think if, if, if there's one thing that I perhaps liked just a little bit less, it would be the uh, the other aspect of Solomon's uh, plot, which is um, uh, what's her name? The, the Anna. Yeah, well, the stuff in the hospital I thought was yeah. still effective and very emotional, but I just wasn't quite as invested in that plot the way it was. Everything else Solomon was up to, and everything Sunjo was up to across time. So. That's my only note, I guess. Yeah, Hannah is a interesting character because she's kind of this almost like spectral character in Solomon's life, and kind of this like you know you don't really understand why she's in the show until about I think episode like six when you get that right. flashback at, into like what she actually was, Solomon. Um, and I I I didn't know if her. I think her character was almost more of just a uh, plot mover for or character development uh, device for Solomon, you know, trying to like get him back to his roots and and back to like who he was and how he's become this like businessman who is, uh, you know, in in some ways very, uh, very much in line with uh, his, his family history, right. With, uh, with, um, Hansu's like personality and kind of how he has he developed this like cold-hearted very like business like demeanor from being this very sensitive kind caring person right and how life has kind of like beat him down and how these women in their lives were kind of this like sensitive aspect for him but or, or for them I should say um you know kind of going I just wanted to touch on your point about language because I, I think there's if you really pay attention to the show like you said you can start to see when the languages start to mingle more and become more like mixed you know between Korean and Japanese um, and in Solomon's case uh, Korean Japanese and English and you talked about like when they're switching between the use of those languages and then some of the scenes later on following um, Sunja when she finally gets to Japan 
um, you know, some of the, the, she's told, you know, when you're out in public, speak Japanese, like you want to fit in, you you don't want to be recognized. And the times when they, they switch back are like when they use these like endearing family turn, uh, terms like Papa or Mama, you know, when they have a child, things like that, or when they use like these nice like names for each other. And it's really, I think, just impressive how thoughtful the show is about the aspect of language and how that signifies like what home means to these people as it's kind of like shifting in their perspective. Um, I just really loved that that touch. Um, you know, going back to Sanja, <laughs> I don't know who had a more impressive performance as Sanja, whether it was Yoon Ye-jung, uh, who yep. played older Sanja, or uh, Kim Min-ha, who, who I think is just absolutely so impressive. And I was like blown yeah. away by just how good she was as this teenage into young adult, young adult Sanja. Just totally blown away by her performance, man. I thought she was a, a star coming out of this. Yeah, totally. And that's what I think was so impressive about the writing of this series is that this character, and obviously a lot of credit to the book, this character is so fleshed out that you have two amazing performances from yeah. two very different versions of the character going on at the same time in the same season of this the mm-hmm. show like it's it's awesome you know yeah um and the, and there's a lot of meat on the bone for season two like yeah. we, we we you just say yeah pay attention like there's just kind of references to uh what happens to noah you know the sanja's uh son yeah. technically with hansu you know we know something bad happens but we haven't seen it yet you know there's a lot more to learn about and we're right on the precipice of the present day timeline where Japan's economy is about to collapse. There's references to the, this period about to start earlier in the series where they talk about Japan's economy being on track to surpass the United States and Japan becoming the wealthiest nation because the bubble hasn't burst yet. And we get some more further references to that where um, the other, other character um, like developer guy speaks to Solomon about how the, dominoes are about to fall but we haven't seen that happen yet right and man like i i'm I'm just kind of blown away at like the possibility for a season two because this first season was so great yeah i I think season two has a ton of potential can't wait to see it um you know i'm i'm just trying to think about like what other aspects of the show really impressed me um i liked how the opening credits if you didn't skip through them as the season goes on it's uh, based more and more back in the past how it changes and like it's kind of done more in a more traditional uh way you know like like the language of it changes the recording is different i thought that was great also Koganata just really loves these like dance numbers which you know yeah i think it's like a really nice like totally. touch to it um yeah, I'm just trying to think like what other things I really loved so much about this show, man. I can't recommend it highly enough. Yeah, I mean, come to think of we've really just we've discussed three shows today that are have a huge component of gender roles. Yeah. You know, under the banner of Heaven, Tokyo Vice, and Pachinko, like so much uh lately. But I you know, Pachinko just really nails everything. It's yeah. a marvelous show. So looking forward to that second season and you know, just like you have episode seven, not from the book. That's perfect evidence that they can make a second season with less reliance on the novel because they've already did that, you know? Yep. So the potential is is really enticing. 
Just uh, speaking real quick to one thing I thought was really impressive and that it kind of speaks to the detail of the show and the, the building of the, the stories and the characters is uh, I think it's like episode three or four when mm. um, uh, Kyung Hee dies and uh, they, they have the priest come over to like say a prayer and speak and Solomon uh, later on is like sorry I can't be that priest that you like so much and yeah. uh, Sanja is like he just reminds me of somebody and at that point you haven't met her her husband right so right. <laughs> when when you finally when it finally comes around and you like or you you might have met him I think he's like boarded at the house at that point so you don't know that they're gonna get together and then he becomes this priest later on oh, or this like spiritual leader you're just like Wow, like that little like line that reminds me of somebody just pays off so well later on mm-hmm. in the season, and it's just yeah, uh, so so well done. The storytelling of this is just next level. Dude. Similarly, like, we're in, we're introduced in the present timeline where Sunja's taking care of uh, Kyungi, and then uh, Kyungi passes. You know, she's bedridden and then dies, and it just introduced as like someone from her past that she's taking care of, like an old friend or something. And then we actually realize it through through the flashback scenes later when Sunja goes to Osaka, like we learn so much more about oh, yeah. how integral uh, Kyung Yi was to Sanja's life and yeah. making it making it through. So and, uh, and there's, scene, there's just so much intentionality. It's awesome. Yeah, that scene between um uh Kim Mi Min Ha and um Felice Choi, who plays young Kyung Hee, where they talk or uh Kyung Hee is talking about like how inadequate she feels next to Sanja because Sanja does all these things and Kyung Hee's been there for like a year and a half or however long and doesn't know how to like do a lot of the things she does and like just how she sees her like role in that country and in that world is so uh, just so well done and like moving and uh, man <laughs> there's so many aspects about the show you can just look back on and be so impressed with so um, highly recommend it uh, I think this is probably going to be on both of our top tens of the year uh, safe to say but we're not done there, Dave, because you putting in that work made it to a movie this uh, past week. Tell me about it. Yes. So I just saw Petite Maman, the new film from Celine Siama, the French director, who, of course, made a lot of waves with her previous feature film, Portrait of a Lady on Fire, which is a masterpiece, an amazing film. And... Love that movie. Check the review on that. And been waiting for the follow-up. The thing is, the team Maman uh, has been out. This movie premiered at Berlin it last year, March 2021, and then came out in France in June 2021. So it's been seen in Europe, but it hasn't actually been released in the United States, apart from, a few, I think, a few very small one-off, you know, coastal screenings. It hasn't been released until uh, this past April. 2022 so it's finally been available and obviously the follow-up to portrait of lady on fire goes without saying very appealing and i think what, what i appreciate most about this movie is that celine siama really uh kind of subverts expectations goes against the grain this film is only 72 minutes long yes. it is not nearly as sweeping in scope uh, thematic um richness as Portrait of Lady on Fire was. It's not exactly the uh, you have a blank check due to your most recent success, do whatever you want. It's a smaller scale film by design. And 
I appreciate that just because I think it kind of shows that she's really, um, really artistic person. And she wrote and directed this. And in the, in the case of Keep My Mind, it's the story of a young eight-year-old girl, Nellie, played by Josephine Sanz, who goes to her uh, just past grandmother's house with her two parents because her parents need to kind of clear out the house, get it ready because, you know, grandma just passed. And, you know, in the process, they're going to be there a few days. In the process, uh, Nellie's mom, Marion, kind of disappears, goes away for like a day or two. And around the same time, uh, Nellie encounters in the woods a another girl that looks just like her, also named Marion, and kind of starts like filling in these gaps about like the, you know, as you can suggest by the character names, as you can suggest by the title of the book, a uh, title of the film. It's a uh, you know, her mom is a kid basically, kind of a high concept film, you know, and they they build a fort together where, you know, Nellie's mom built a fort back in the day as a kid because again it's at you know her childhood home, and. Kind of like go back and forth through these like I don't know these realms basically where like where Nellie and like young Marion will like go back to the house, but now like Grandma's alive because it's like in the past. It's kind of like a kind of like a you know like a flashback um, science fictiony almost thing, but like there's no like you know like science fiction actually going on with the movie. It's like all I guess in her head or in her experience, and it's kind of like a petite little movie about kind of like how you learn about your parents and it's uh i I think it's a really interesting movie and not what i expected obviously it's the follow-up from portrait but i uh i appreciated how i think how much she was able to get into this movie in only 72 minutes and i would definitely recommend it as it becomes available it's a neon release so eventually we'll go on to hulu i'd imagine yeah, I def- definitely one I want to check out. And I, I just love that idea. I, like you mentioned, it's a little high concept, but I think those like themes are so interesting. And I really also love that she kind of continues to center like female relationships at the center of her mm-hmm. movies. Um, seems like that's a lane that she wants to continue exploring in different ways. So I hope she st- sticks with that. Yeah, you know, I, I think in, in the press notes, they've been talking about how uh, Miyazaki was a, inspiration for Siyama and like I think the parallels to my neighbor Totoro are very very evident if you've seen that film so yeah definitely uh like kind of like a fable type story I'd recommend it nice I think that's going to wrap us up there for this week Dave what we got for next week yeah so next week of course Marvel Cinematic Universe wrapping up Moon Knight on Disney plus that's one thing but back on the silver screen first time since Spider-Man, No Way Home, Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness coming out. Cameos and references galore to be expected. So we'll have a lot to discuss there, I'm sure. Also, Winning Time, Season 1, ending on HBO. And then a quartet of uh, anticipated new albums from Sharon Van Etten and Arcade Fire, Jack Harlow, and LMI. Very excited about all those albums. We'll be talking about all that and more. Subscribe youtube.com slash nostalgia pod and follow us on Spotify. Catch you next week.